afternoon to all of you. Seems so long since I've had a chance to visit with you. Although I did have a large stack of visits on my email when I got home. I've been trying to get through those and answer as many as possible. Uh, first of all, I'd like to announce that uh, Marlon and I will be in St. Louis on November 7th. And we're also scheduled in Chicago on November 28th, so that you have that uh, knowledge ahead of time. Uh, one announcement from here in the Denver area, which may have gotten around on the grapevine and may not have, and that is that Jackie Wilhelm uh, had her vehicle run into uh, on, I guess, Monday morning. And uh, hit her pretty hard, pretty well totaled the vehicle. Uh, she had 45 to 60 stitches in her forehead. Uh, there is some concern there that there could be some scarring from that. So uh, we would like to ask for your prayers in that uh, regard. Also, her right shoulder and her forearm uh, are causing her quite a bit of pain. And she's banged and bruised pretty well all over. She also may have had a concussion. It seems that she's losing some of her thoughts as she's talking along, and uh, she's not as old as I am, So, and it didn't happen before the accident. I, I have an excuse, I guess, <laughs> in age, but Jackie uh, is suffering as a result of, of this accident. Um, when we went to see her Tuesday morning when we came in, or I guess it was Monday morning, no, it was Tuesday, she, yeah. Um, she had her head all wrapped, and then she had uh, gauze down under her chin as well, and the kids are all calling her mummy now instead of mommy. But uh, she would certainly appreciate your prayers and uh, for her long-term healing and hopefully no uh, brain damage there. Well, John asked me to uh, relate a little bit of news from Africa since we did not get any to you during the feast. And I'm so pleased to report that we had a wonderful feast over there. There were only 43 people total. Of course, that's uh, quite a bit larger than last year. We had about 25 last year, and this year 43. But uh, what they lacked in numbers, they made up for in enthusiasm, hospitality, dedication to God, and determination to hang on to the truth no matter the cost. I will report to you they are a very serious-minded group, and they are diligently seeking greater understanding and what God desires of them. So the spiritual report is, uh, to me, in that sense, more important than, than the physical, though everything was fine physically as well. We were able to go over before atonement and have the extra time with them there on atonement and the weekly Sabbath preceding the feast. So I'll, I'll say that while we missed all of you here as individuals, we did not miss the spirit and attitude, for it is the same there as here. Maybe it was a little more intense in some respects, for they are even more scattered than here, and some of them did not see another converted human being all year long until the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's a lot of pent-up emotion there and desire to visit and, and uh, so on. Uh, you were asked to pray about Joy Griffith before the feast. Her father was ill, and she was having all kinds of uh, impediments or hurdles in her way to even get to the feast. And she's one of those that only sees somebody once a year. But she was able to come and stay for the whole feast and was so happy to be there. 
and we were so happy to have her there. But uh, those people face difficulties that you and I over here are only beginning to recognize as potential problems, perhaps. The country is rapidly deteriorating into third world status. It was last year, but it's, uh, it seems that the, uh, the haste and, and it's speeding up. For instance, last year the South African rand was approximately four to the dollar. This year it's six to the dollar and weakening. Interest rates are at about 25%, which is much higher than ours. And crime and graft is rising exponentially. Here's one statistic for you. In South Africa, an average of about one farmer a day is killed by roving bands of thieves and vagabonds. And those thieves and vagabonds don't then go out and plant crops. Uh, the land sometimes lies fallow or goes back to the government. And uh, Joy Griffith and her husband, incidentally, are way out near Lesotho land uh, on the Orange Free State border there and uh, way out in the country and would appreciate your prayers very much because they are in the category of the type of people that these people attack. And with all that, one feels as safe in the little communities where we held a feast as we do in this country. Um, there doesn't seem to be that kind of crime along the coast and the, and the holiday areas, so we felt safe to walk about the streets there in the village. There wasn't any problem at all, despite the problems elsewhere. So from a geographical standpoint, South Africa is a gorgeous manifestation of God's handiwork. The problems there are from Satan and man, as is true everywhere else on this globe. But the people there did ask me to pass along their love to you, which I will do here. And I will ask you as well through this coming year to devote some of your prayers to your brothers and sisters scattered there and elsewhere in the world where living conditions are more difficult and trying than they are here. We will not be far behind in terms of degradation of our own standard of living and living conditions. Now getting on to the sermon, it seems so long ago with a peace break since I last addressed you and began this series on the minor prophets in the New Testament church that I feel we should review a little bit. We often read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the blessing and cursings chapter. I would be surprised if it was not referred to during the feast. Over here it was certainly in Africa a time or two. And we apply those to today. They are eternal principles that have applied to every age and every human being, though originally written specifically to ancient Israel. Now as 1 Corinthians 10 clearly states, all the instruction, the lives of men, good and bad, the conspiracies and political intrigue of all the ages, such as in David's reign, is recorded for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now, Paul wrote that, thinking the ends of the world were coming upon him, and in one sense they did, because he was killed. But if they were true in Paul's day, so much so more so now, including the New Testament record, which was added to the record which Paul spoke from, for those of us upon whom truly the ends of the world are come. So we have both the Old and the New Testament now as examples to us, where those people then only had the Old Testament examples. So if it's true of those people and Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, it is also so with the prophets. 
mentioned before that some few prophecies may apply solely to the church, others only to physical Israel, but it appears to me that in large part they apply to both in different types of fulfillments. Man has constantly repeated history in both the physical and spiritual arenas. For human nature does not change, and neither does Satan. What has been will be, and there is nothing new under the sun. What man has done in the past, he's going to do again. Human nature just seems like uh, one generation doesn't learn, or if one generation learns, the next reverts right back to the old way. Uh, and few generations, it seems, really have ever learned. Well, we began in Hosea, and the name Hosea is the same as Joshua, or Savior, or Yahweh saves. So ultimately the message of this book is that no matter how bad it got, God is going to save us out of it. And no matter how bad things are in the church today, uh, as we look at the disintegration and the problems, God is going to save us out of it. That's the overall message here. There's a pretty, pretty grim indictment of us in the meantime, but God will see it through. The book begins with Hosea instructed to marry a harlot as a type of the relationship of Christ with his bride, ancient Israel. And of course Israel went whoring after other gods, and that was the whole story here. The children were named to typify the problems in Israel and the difficulties in the relationship they had with God. His wife's name was Gomer, meaning corruption. The first son was Jezreel, meaning the scattered seed of God or dispersion, showing God would scatter Israel. Now this is easy to apply to the church today because we are suffering the same conditions. So whether it's a specific prophecy or not, as generation blends into generation, the same problems occur and the solutions are the same. So whether or not this is a specific prophecy to the church or not, we can go back here and see the principles of what was involved, where those people went, how they were let off track, how they got uh, juxtaposed against God, and then what it would take to bring them back. And we're suffering the same problems, and it's going to require the same solutions. Another daughter was named Loruama, which means unloved or not having obtained mercy, showing God would no longer have mercy on Israel under those conditions. Now, in some respects, God is showing no mercy on the church today. He is dispersing and scattering it, as we've seen in many scriptures. But in another way, I would have to say that God is showing great mercy on us, the church. Because in all this scattering, he is giving us time to wake up, to repent, to overcome, and be saved, rather than just dropping a bomb on us and, and ending us. So even though he's, in that sense, not showing mercy and keeping us together, he's showing mercy and giving us space to come out of it. Now, a son followed that one in verse 9. He was named Loami, meaning, not my people showing God's disdain for their attitude. So he says, you're not my people anymore through the birth of this son. And I think in some respects he's saying the same thing to us. This is not the kind of people I anticipated. You did not do it the way I wanted you to do it. So he's turned our back on us as 
he says in several scriptures, and I think it's even mentioned here in Hosea. I remember Herbert Armstrong sometimes saying, well, that's just not God's church anymore. Or this is just not God's college anymore. And what he meant was, our actions do not coincide with what God wants. Now, in an overall sense, sure, it was still God's church. We're, we're still God's people. But on the other hand, it was not a happy situation. Now, in verse 10 of Hosea 1, it shows that this is not a, uh, a forever situation. He says, I will not be your God, you are not my people, in verse 9. And he says then in verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. So there's got to be a change in attitude, God says, from what Israel had become to what they would be, so that he could again call them sons. And that is New Testament type language, sons of the living God. Now, chapter 2, he went ahead and divorced ancient Israel, and he said, verse 2, it's sort of the same language, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. And of course, he had divorced Israel at one point. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. The Worldwide Church of God began going into whoredoms in a big way. And we were affected by that as the children. And God says, I'll not have mercy on the children either until there is a change in attitude. Well, let's skip on down. I think we covered some of this. But verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her, or friendly to her. So God says, once you go through what you are going through, I'm going to take you out and speak in a friendly way. And I will give her her vineyards from thence in the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. So this is going to have a happy conclusion when it's all said and done. God is able to save Israel. He is able to save the world. He is able to save the church. And he will do so. The question is, what do we have to go through in order for that to happen? And he will put us through whatever is necessary. If we come willingly, it will be easier on us. Verse 20, I will even betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, says the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, You are my people, and they shall say, You are my God. So here's a beautiful prophecy of how this is all going to turn out once we get past the lumps on the road that we're going over. Now in the New Testament, we find Christ offers a new wedding covenant to a few selected humans, only those which the Father calls. 
the final selection after sifting and sorting <coughs> amounts to 144,000, which is the future wife of Christ. Now, we embraced this concept in Worldwide Church of God years ago, and we figured if we were there as part of the church, we would be included, and all was well. After all, we were Philadelphia, weren't we? And therefore, being Philadelphians, everything would go fine for us, and there wasn't much bad said about Philadelphia there in Revelation 3, so we thought we were A-OK, which was a recipe for disaster because we went to sleep. And as with ancient Israel, problems arose. And we find the principles that apply to ancient Israel staring us in the face today. Dispersion, scattering, lack of mercy, and no longer, in a sense, being God's people, in the sense that he is spewing us out of his mouth for lukewarmness, lightheartedness, and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not standing here to tell you that everyone in the church is currently in that condition, because I think that there are quite a few people now who are beginning to take this very seriously and are making changes. And to me, I find that very encouraging. And I think many of you here on the hookup today are very serious, just as we found the people in South Africa to be very serious. They have begun to truly wake up, and that bodes good for the future. <laughs> now, much of Hosea is directed at Ephraim, and I went back to Jeremiah 31.9 and showed that God had changed the birth order to make Ephraim the firstborn, because that is not the way the children were born, but God called Ephraim the firstborn. So he has the power, the authority, the sovereignty to shuffle the deck and make Ephraim the firstborn. And then further we saw in Hebrews 12.23 that there's a tie into the church because we are called there in Hebrews 12.23 the church of the firstborn. So there seems to be a definite tie between Ephraim as the leading son of ancient Israel and the church as the end time projected leaders of Israel in the millennium and thereafter. The firstborn sons after Christ. <coughs> Now, there was an interesting parallel brought up to me this week that I was not aware of. I was aware of the scripture back in Isaiah 7 and verse 8, if you want to go back and, and look at this one. I'm not going to take time to go through the whole uh, context here of what was going on. But in verse 8, it says, halfway through the verse, And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. I thought it was interesting that it came up when we were here in Hosea, which discusses Ephraim at great length and, uh, and lays a lot of the problems at her door. And here we are, spiritually the firstborn, and I think it ties in. Now what the situation was here in Isaiah 7 is that there was a conspiracy. And they were trying to take over the government. And God said within 65 years, not at 65 years or after 65 years, but within 65 years, Ephraim would be broken that she be not a people. Now, interestingly enough, in the church, we had several conspiracies over the last oh, 20 or 30 years. Uh, there was a conspiracy where quite a few ministers left back in the early 70s and wanted to take over. I won't name names, and maybe their motives weren't as bad as that, I don't know, but they left... And they took quite a few people with them. Uh, Mr. Armstrong's own son, hearkening back to the days of David, 
uh, conspired to take over. And uh, then the Takachis did conspire and did take over. And you've seen what happened since. So there's nothing new under the sun. The things that happened back in the time of David and in ancient Israel are happening in the church today. What has been will be. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the church apparently, and I was not familiar with this statistic, the church was apparently organized under Mr. Armstrong as a church. I don't know whether incorporated or an organizational meeting or what occurred, but it was reported to me that the birthday of the church was October 21st, 1933. You add 65 years to that and you come up to October 21st, 1998. There's 65 years. Now, I had, in my own mind, uh, looked at this scripture and said, well, maybe the church began in 1926 or 27 with the conversion of Esther Armstrong. And, uh, but 65 years would have already occurred, you see. Uh, or maybe 1934 when the broadcast began. But it was, as it was reported, the church actually began on October 21st, 1933. Now, it doesn't say after 65 years, but within 65 years, Ephraim would no longer be a people. Now, this is the same language that Hosea used. You will not be my people. Now, all Ephraimites are not destroyed. There are still Ephraimites today, and there are spiritual Ephraimites today. So what does it mean, not be a people, and how could it apply to us today? Well, I had someone ask me this week what I do. And I told them I was a minister with a church. And I didn't say which church, because that means nothing to them, but I always cringe when they say which church because it is so very difficult to explain. Used to, we were a people. We were one organization. I could say Worldwide Church of God, Herbert Armstrong. Oh, I've heard of that. Or I haven't heard of that, but usually they would say, I've heard of that. Now, it would be easy if I were a Methodist or Baptist or Catholic, I could say, well, Methodist Church. Oh, okay. And that would be the end of the questions. But I say... Uh, Church of the Great God, and they say, what's that? And then you have to say, well, did you ever hear of Herbert Armstrong? He was the guy that started the church, and he died, and then it all broke up, and uh, we're little splinters and pieces, and we have groups all over the country, and I travel to see some of them, and, and so on and so forth. We are not a cohesive people anymore. That doesn't mean that there aren't individuals here and there scattered around the world who are still God's true children, but we aren't a people. And it didn't happen October 21st, 1998, that suddenly we were no longer a people. But within that 65-year period, here in the last 10, 12, 15 years, we have become dispersed to the point we could no longer be called that. We are bits and pieces, flotsam and jetsam, little lifeboats, whatever you want to call us. But we are not, in that sense, a people with any real power and no real recognizable organization, except for little ones. So I wonder if this might not be something that uh, has just occurred to the church. Now, it may have a, a bigger meaning for Ephraim somewhere along the line uh, as a nation, but it is ironic that it could apply to the church here as well. Now, further, October 21st, 1998 is exactly 666 weeks since the death of Herbert Armstrong. 
I'm not into numbers much and don't pay a whole lot of attention to those, but 666 does kind of catch my eye when I see it somewhere. Uh, in its simplest form, as I have been told, 666 equals unity. Unity has been destroyed within or before that 65 years was complete from the time the New Testament church end time uh, arrangement started. Now, 1998 divided by 3 equals 666 plus 666 plus 666. Three times unity. Perhaps broken. A threefold cord is not quickly broken, one proverb says. Now, what has happened to the unity that was in the church? It is gone and worldwide has entered the unity of the global ecumenical movement of churches. They've gone back to paganism, to Egypt and Babylon. So not only has the unity been broken since the death of Herbert Armstrong until October 21st, 1998, but the church itself, the worldwide church of God, has unified with the beast movement. So when we say 666 in terms of the beast, it's a global unity as opposed to the unity of God's people. And it is a false and wrong unity which is going to be destroyed by Christ that is coming. Now is this all a coincidence? Or is there a tie-in with these prophecies in Hosea? And what has happened and is happening in the church? I don't know that I know the answer to that, but I thought it was interesting in the light of the fact that we're talking about Ephraim here in the book of Hosea. And the conditions that have occurred in the church seem very much a parallel to that. Now let's go to Hosea um, 3. Then said the Lord to me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the, of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for fifteen pieces of silver, and for a homer of barley, and a half homer of barley. And I said to her, You shall abide for me many days, and you shall not play the harlot, and you shall not be for another man, so will I also be for you. So here he took the harlot and said, You're mine now, and you can't go to any other man. So the type here is that Christ begins to work with Israel. She has been a harlot, but he says, don't be that anymore. Then it's very interesting in, in verse 4. He says, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without teraphim. In other words, they would not have leadership. They would mill about in confusion and their religious uh, observation would basically deteriorate. I find that very interesting in terms of the church today. Let's notice Isaiah 51.18. I'll give you uh, a couple of scriptures to go with this one here in Hosea. Isaiah 51 and verse 8. Wait a minute. I guess I wanted to... 18, not 8. Isaiah 51, 18. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. 
And here he's talking about Israel and or the church, spiritual Israel, and how we need to awake, awake and depart from Babylon to get as far from Babylonian influence as we possibly can uh, because it takes us away from God. But he says there's no one to lead her. Now let's go back to Micah. And here he talks about in verse 8, well, verse 7, the remnant that halted and how God is going to restore that remnant. And you, O tower of the flock, or watchman of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the daughters of the church, unto you shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So God is going to begin to restore through the church. Now, why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. And we have been, since the death of Herbert Armstrong, without an overall leader, without in that sense a king, quote-unquote, anyone that we can all look to, we've been wandering about and various leaders here and there, searching here and there, trying to find direction, and there's been an awful lot of confusion. So these scriptures seem to apply certainly in principle, if not specifically, to the church. Let's see, is there any one, uh, other one I want to add there? I guess that, uh, that gives enough to show that. We've been about 13 years now wandering about, going east and west, as Amos 8, verse, I think, 9 or 10 says, and uh, searching for and not finding much. Now, what happens next? With that, here we are, wandering in confusion, frustration, people wandering from group to group, trying to find proper leadership. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now it's obvious we should seek the Lord during this period of time. But I want to stop that train of thought and consider types here. Sometimes this concept sort of unsettles or spooks us, I think. Um, we can ask the question, is so-and-so a type of Christ? Is so-and-so a type of Moses or a type of David? And in some ways it sounds so religious <laughs> or important and special. It might tend to exalt the individual if they can be compared to a biblical or a heavenly figure. Now what is a type? Is, is it all that difficult? What does it mean? I went, to, I went to Webster to get a definition of what a type is. Now, they use the uh, religious type first. A person believed to foreshadow another. Uh, no, wait a minute. He didn't use that either. Uh, I don't think I even included that because I, I just wanted to get these other areas. A person believed to foreshadow another, one having qualities of a higher category. And this one is a little involved, but we'll get the point. A lower taxonomic category selected as a standard of reference for a higher category throw out the taxonomic, but something lower selected as a standard of reference for something higher. Synonyms. Kind. Sort. You meet someone, you ask, what sort of person was that? Uh, were they Moses or Korah? David or Saul? Peter or Ananias? Friendly or mean? Uh, hospitable or pushing people away. What sort of person? What type of person, in other words? 
description, a character, meaning a number of individuals thought of as a group because of a common quality or qualities. People that are alike because of common qualities. Nothing particularly foreboding here yet, is there? But this is something that could be good. The word typify means to represent as by an image, form, model, or resemblance to embody the essential or salient characteristics of, to be like, to have the same character. We might use the example of blood types. You say, well, I'm A positive, I guess, if there's such a category. Well, that means that you share in your blood type certain characteristics with someone of the same blood type, that the type is the same. Sometimes you might find a biblical character that you really like or admire, like Ruth or like uh, Daniel or Paul, and you might name your kid that. And if you name your daughter Ruth, you'll probably, while she's growing up in the young ages, you'll probably go back and read the story of Ruth to her because you hope she turns up to be that type of person to have the characteristics of Ruth. So you name your kid after, in the hopes that he will turn out to be that type of person. And uh, in the Latin countries, the names Jesus and Maria are very common. They name their kids after Jesus and Mary, mostly the Catholic influence, but they hope that their kids will be like that. Now this organization, Church of the Great God, began with a sermon entitled, Do You See God in Your Life? which I thought was a very fitting beginning when John gave that sermon. Now, some years ago, I played with that phrase a little bit and turned it around in a sermon entitled, Does God See Himself in You? Does He see Christ when He looks at you? Does Christ see Himself in you? We know the Bible constantly urges us to be like Christ. He is the Good Shepherd. And the whole point, really, of the book of Hebrews is to be like Christ, the captain of our salvation. That church, the Hebrews, the Jews who had been converted, Paul said by that time should have been teachers. They should have been more like Christ in their thinking. But they needed milk. And they weren't very good types of Christ. They were not evincing his characteristics enough. So he got on them about it. He urged them to rise to the level of faith of Abraham, of Sarah, Isaac, David, and Rahab, and others in Hebrews 11. So this is the way you should be, because those people and their character came to be more like Christ than most people. And therefore they were types to follow in that their character was like Christ. They were to come to have the faith of those people. Colossians 1.27 tells us, that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Other familiar scriptures, let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. Or the modern parallel in this world is, I want to be like Mike, speaking of a sports figure. Uh, He has the charisma, he has the money, he has the fame, he has all these things. But we don't want to be like Mike, we want to be like Jesus Christ. Michael Jordan is not the type that we're working to be like or to have the character of. Now, as leaders of our children, I'm speaking to mothers and fathers here, as leaders of our wives, 
speaking to husbands and as leaders of the congregation in terms of giving prayers, sermonettes, sermons. We have to be seeking this level of spirituality and leadership to be like Christ in the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we conduct our relationships with our families. God is looking for these types in us, brethren. Does he see himself in us? Now there's a fine line between what Paul said about himself, oh wretched man that I am, recognizing our failings, recognizing what we need to be doing to grow and to overcome and, and be honest, not be hiding ourselves from ourselves, as Isaiah 58 says, but being honest and true, not justifying our wrongs, but recognizing that we as human beings, compared to Christ, are wretched. Now we can be downtrodden and feel bad and and be discouraged over that if we wish, but that's not what God wants us to do. We have to have that honest recognition of what we really are, but we also have to have the visionary recognition that that we are called to be types of Christ and to be like all the righteous men and women of the Bible, to come to have their characteristics, their thoughts, their nature, their type of mind. Proverbs 29.18 tells us, For lack of vision, the people perish. We have to see what it is that we are a type of. Also, even in Hosea 4, verse 6, it says, For lack of knowledge, the people perish. And he goes on to say, They've lost knowledge and obedience to the law. Again, the blessings and cursings. And we had come to the point that we were lackadaisical and weak. And... uh, we're being destroyed. So we have to have the vision of who we really are, of what God really expects of us, how important in that sense we are. And we have all these examples in the Bible that are set forth as examples for us, both bad, lest we repeat the sin, and good, that we be types of Christ and lights to the world. And in the same fashion as were Christ, Noah, Abraham, Enoch, David, and now added to that list, Paul, Peter, James, John, Stephen, and many others named in the New Testament who will be part of the kingdom of God. So far as I know, God does not show in the pages of the Bible anyone who has lost eternal life. There might be some question about Judas. There might be some question about, uh, who else did I have? Solomon. But nothing in there states that they are lost. But he gives us a whole cloud of witnesses of people who made it. In other words, God wants this word of his to be a very great encouragement to us. And to realize that we are converted and have the same Holy Spirit that James and Peter and John and all those people had, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had access to. And those people are only going to be resurrected a split second of those who are alive and remain. And they're not to receive the reward ahead of us, as is plainly stated in Hebrews 11, 38-40. So all these people are there as types of Christ, and they are models or types for us to follow. Now from a governmental standpoint, getting to verse 5 here of chapter 3, David is often linked with Christ and is as an example of good shepherding, as it is right here in Hosea. Ezekiel 34 says the same thing. 
a great indictment against the shepherds of the church, which we've always recognized. But then down toward verses 24, 5, 6, somewhere right in there, he gives an example of a good shepherd, uh, as David was, and shows that Christ himself is the good shepherd in so many, many scriptures. Now the church right now has a shortage of loyal, faithful shepherds. We're plagued with false ministers and with hirelings, and we have no overall king or shepherd capable of leading the whole church. No one has the spiritual stature where we can all just say, oh, it's obvious, we should follow that man. So we break into smaller and smaller groups and become teachers to ourselves and so on and so forth. But the sobering part is that God expects each of us to fulfill these roles in type as lights to whomsoever we might come in contact. Every one of us is a type of Christ. Now, we may not be real strong types yet. We may be weak types. But that's what he's called us to be, as types of Christ. Now, go back to the definition. To come to have his characteristics, to come to have his mind, to be the same sort of person he is, to think like he thinks, so that when people see us, they see Christ. When God looks at us, they see Christ. In other words, on some, some level, we are all types of Christ, or we are not his disciples. So a type doesn't have to be some great scary thing. I mean, it's scary in that we are, as individuals, types. But it doesn't have to be some great spiritual thing that some one individual might be, because it's something we all share. John 15 through 17, Christ talks about him being the vine and us the branches how he loves us and we love each other and that by this men know we are his disciples that is look at the synonyms again we are the same type individuals he is now that's scary because I don't measure up we don't compare ourselves among ourselves because that isn't wise because we this week we might be a pretty good type of Christ next week we might not be so hot or this moment and the next moment and it doesn't do any good to compare ourselves among ourselves because we are all far short of what Christ is and therefore it's futile and vain and egocentric to begin to compare. But if we compare ourselves with him, we have a long way to go. And that's why Paul said, "A oh, wretched man that I am, I fall far short of that. But now, consider this. That God began to restore proper leadership through Herbert W. Armstrong. Revelation 3 and verse 7, which we read over and over and over. Says it, is it 3 7? I, I wrote that down. I didn't go back and look. I might be misquoting the verse. I don't read it as much as I did back when we said we're Philadelphia, nothing else, and we'd read that a lot and say, look at all the good things about us. Let's see if I can find it here now. Yeah, it's verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. I know your works, and I've set before you an open door. Uh, you've kept my word, not denied my name, and so on. But he says to Philadelphia, the one who has the keys of David says to Philadelphia, these are your characteristics. And I believe that he began to restore the kind of shepherding under Herbert Armstrong that was proper. 
He began to restore the true commandment keeping that had been lost. Remember some of the Psalms? Oh, how David loved God's law. We sing it quite frequently. Oh, how love I thy law. And proper government. Herbert Armstrong was not the kind that wanted heavy government as a younger man, but he began to understand that there were elements of government in the Bible. And Christ did make Herbert Armstrong, quote-unquote, king or shepherd over the whole church. We all recognized him as our leader, as the one man whom God had raised up. Now, as an individual, I found him to be kind, considerate, patient, and gentle in my relationship that I had with him at least as student body president and later in the ministry. I found that if I was wrong, he showed me no mercy. But sometimes when I was wrong, he showed, I mean, he, he, he didn't show me mercy when I didn't deserve it. But then also when I was wrong, he showed me mercy when I didn't deserve it. That's grace. Now, there are other men who began to misuse and abuse government, but I found Mr. Armstrong to be a very gentle, kind, loving shepherd on a one-on-one basis. He could be powerful if someone's attitude was wrong. Uh, There's no doubt about it. But Christ is that way, very gentle, and yet he is going to rule with a rod of iron. So, to some degree, Herbert Armstrong, and especially the shepherds and the flock as a whole, fell short of the expectations that we had of ourselves. We went to sleep. Now look at us. We began to lose our first love. We began to lose the faith once delivered. We became lukewarm, going through the motions, idolatrous, worldly, and materialistic. So Christ spewed us out of his mouth, and as it says there very clearly in Ezekiel 34, the flocks were taken away from the ministry. Now, am I saying then that Herbert Armstrong was David? Not at all. I'm saying that God began through that man to restore commandment keeping and a respect for the laws that David had, that he began to restore government through Herbert Armstrong and the type of government that David would have conducted and that Christ would conduct. But it got off track. And as a result of the failure of us as people in the ministry, uh, just like ancient Israel, the problem wasn't with the covenant, it wasn't with the church, it was with us. Now, repentance is going to lead a remnant of God's people to become proper types. And we'll see later, through Joshua and Zerubbabel, and the remnant of the people who are faithful will combine to build a proper temple, and there Christ, he says, will bring peace in Haggai. In other words, proper shepherding will return. So the leadership and the membership who will rebuild the temple are all end-time types of Christ. We are also types of Moses, of Elijah, and John the Baptist in some fashion. Because as we grow, we come to have the characteristics of those people. So from a shepherding standpoint, not from a vine and branches, not from a temple uh, (laughs) and living stones, but from a shepherding standpoint, Hosea shows it to be Christ and David, the characteristics of the leadership that the people will seek. So we're all types of Christ, Zerubbabel's. Some types are just more distinct and specific as leaders, perhaps. So there's nothing magical about it, but simply becoming like Christ, and these men and women uh, were, as Webster defined it, their character, their outlook, their mind. 
certainly the two witnesses are not David and Christ, but they will rule like them, gently, lovingly, kindly. God is going to restore proper shepherding. So the types are simply stronger in the two witnesses who lead the building of the latter temple. And many types come together there uh, at the end, all pointing to Christ. So that is how I see this verse and others showing David as an example of proper shepherding in our leaders who will eventually appear as shown in Haggai, Zechariah, Matthew, Revelation, and other passages. In other words, this may be something that was begun in Herbert Armstrong and interrupted because of Laodiceanism that came in. And Herbert Armstrong may have been in that sense a minor figure or a minor type of David and of Christ trying to restore the commandments of God. And uh, all the leaders of God have been types of Christ. All the members of the God's church have been types of Christ. Now the 444,000 leaders for the millennium and the world tomorrow must be in place for Christ to establish his government. And we're now at the tail end of that count. He's sifting and sorting through and adding the final names. I don't know how many he lacks. He didn't tell me. Uh, and it's not in the Bible as far as I know. But uh, I know that the final number is going to come out that. So maybe he lacks 500 or 1,000 or another 30,000. I don't know. I just hope that you and I can be among them. So when I've referred to a type of David from several scriptures, it is in the spiritual sense that I've meant it. And as we repent in the latter days, God will give us proper shepherding. Now he says that he mentions latter days here in Hosea. Uh, we read that. But let's address that also for just for a moment. What time is it getting to be? I guess I'm all right for a little bit here. I'm going back to Hosea chapter 3. Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and I'll paraphrase this, and seek the kind of leadership that would be given by David and Christ and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, does that mean in the millennium? Or does it mean in the latter days just before the millennium? I suppose in the latter days could certainly mean the last half of the 7,000 years. Seven years is a day, numbers 1434. I mean, uh, a day is a year, and a year is a thousand years. So the last half of the 7,000 years could be the latter days. So we could apply it that way. Beginning with the apostles, Christ established proper shepherding leadership in the spirit of David and Christ. Through Peter, Paul, and the others. What did he tell Peter three times? Go convert the world? No, he told him that basically once. But right there in context, he told Peter three times, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That was the emphasis. Proper shepherding. Paul spent quite a little ink uh, describing to Titus and to uh, Timothy and various others and how they were to shepherd the sheep. So God was restoring it even then as the latter days began. But since the death of the apostles, that kind of leadership has certainly been spotty on through the Middle Ages up until today. <clears throat> but I think it began to be restored to some degree in Herbert Armstrong and then it took a step backward because of ego and because of uh, ministers setting themselves up and condescending to the people, setting themselves above the people. In the latter days might also mean right at the end. And here I think we find ourselves very close to the end of this age and the beginning of the new. We are in the, ax the uh, axial period, 
the fulcrum or it tips the other direction so it can mean light at the end as well and as per the scripture just above in verse 4 and these others we saw in Isaiah 51 and Micah 4 we are without a physical leader but that is by design brethren God does not have us a leader right now on purpose for our benefit believe it or not would it be nice, we think, to have a leader that could take us in the right direction and as he followed Christ, we could follow him and we could all head the right direction. But this has been a problem before. Let's go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And beginning in verse 42. Well, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? They say to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit you on my right hand, and I'll make your enemies your, footsto- my, your footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? So it's a riddle that he asked them. And a riddle that they did not want to answer. No man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. If they answered this, they'd have to admit he preceded David and that he was God. And they were not about to admit that. The Jews sought a leader like David as a warrior king. Christ tells them, I was there before David. I've always been there. But you have constantly ignored and neglected me. Good leadership was always available if they had only listened. But they would not. Here he forced them to admit he was God or shut up. So they shut up. They wanted a leader like David. They wanted a human leader. They wanted a human champion. Had Christ come in the full battle regalia, they would have accepted him. But they rejected him. Now Christ and David will rule together as gentle shepherds in the millennium. Not warriors as the Jews expect. David will not even be resurrected until the destruction is pretty much accomplished. And people are living on into the millennium. The New Testament church has always sought the kind of gentle leadership David provided. Really caring for the flock. A king in the Old Testament was to make a copy of the law and read it every day. Lest he lift himself above his brothers. The ministerial image. I'm a little better than you. I can teach you and you're beneath me. That has to go away. Even a king with crown, diadem, and glory was not to lift himself up in his attitude above his brothers. So condescension has to go away. True humility has to come. God is going to give us a strong type again for at least three and a half years right at the end. Maybe a tad longer. But the Jews always bypass God in Christ and look to a physical leader. Now let's notice in John 8, Christ makes this a little stronger. John chapter 8, uh, verse 19. Then said they to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have, should have known my father also. And he goes on down. They said that they had Abraham to their father. Let's see, where I, I don't want to take the time to read all of this. Uh, down in verse 41 you do the deeds of your father then they said to him we be not born of fornication like you 
We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil. And he's the, a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Verse 45. Which of you convinces me of sin or convicts me? And if I say the truth, why do you believe not believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Now wait a minute. Where, I overlooked something here. I'm looking for that one where he says... Uh, before Abraham was, I am. Now my eye doesn't fall on it. Okay, it's further down. <laughs> Verse 57. Then said the Jews to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Because he said, uh, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. Because they identified with Abraham, not with God, not with Christ. So he made it clear, I've been here all along, but you have ignored me. In other words, we cannot look to physical leaders for salvation. We are to seek Christ now, with all our hearts. We have no physical leader overall, and God has done that on purpose for our benefit. If Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, they could only save themselves. By not letting us identify with a physical leader as such for the whole church, God is forcing us to seek God on our own. It is a personal relationship we have to build. Without an overall physical leader, we have to build a relationship. That is why we're without a leader today. The problem was in the early New Testament in church as well. Remember that one? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. We could insert names today of people that we would look to as leaders in our own organization and other organizations. They can't save us. We tended toward that mistake under Herbert Armstrong to look to him and think he was just going to lead us right into a place of safety and right on into the kingdom of God. We cannot afford to make that mistake again. By saying, I happen to be in Philadelphia or Global or United or CGG or some other organization and say, we've got good leadership, therefore we're going to be okay. Don't make that mistake. God loved us without an overall leader so we would be forced to build a relationship with him. They can only lead us to Christ and we're to follow them only as they follow Christ. That is, the two witnesses, the leadership that God is going to provide for us right at the end. So as physical Israel comes out of tribulation and repents, <clears throat> that leadership that he gives us in the form of two men will be extended to them, uh, not with two leaders, whose job was to restructure the latter temple, but with Christ and 144,000 qualified leaders, in which we can be included if we become proper types of Christ and proper types of the faithful men and women of the past. So he's going to give us a couple of leaders who will be types of Christ just as we are types of Christ, perhaps a stronger type in this sense. But then there are going to be 144,000 leaders. Don't neglect so great an opportunity or so great a salvation. So while a great weight of responsibility will be laid on the two witnesses who will assuredly die as martyrs, 
in the fashion of Paul, James, Peter, Stephen, and others, each of us has a weighty calling to be types of Abraham, David, Rahab, and Christ himself. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And we are here to please him. Hosea is a type of Christ married to a harlot. He washes and cleanses her and her children in repentance, Ezekiel 16, and through his own blood in the New Testament. Then she can be called his people, his church, his virgin bride. Now that is why Paul was able to tell the Corinthians of all people that he was preparing them as a chaste virgin to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.2 if you want to make a note of it. In other words, brethren, the type in you and me has to change. From idolatrous harlots seeking our own way to becoming strong, faithful, diligent types of Christ and others as urged by Paul in Hebrews 11. When we meet people, we look for things in common, don't we? Are they our type? Christ is looking for his type. He's looking for compatibility. He's not looking for carnality, but those who are possessing the mind of Christ. People who react like him, who think like him, who are his type. And he's going to marry that type. That's why Romans 12.1 tells us to be you transformed, not conformed to this world, but changed to begin to think like he thinks. So there is a real message for the church in Hosea, which is so echoed in the New Testament. That is why the New Testament writers so frequently referred back here for source material. It applies to us now and to physical Israel when Christ returns. Does Christ see himself in you? Does he see himself in me? That's what he's looking for, is a form, a type, a sort, a kind of person. And he knows we didn't start there. He knows how we were at the beginning of the book of Hosea, for instance, and uses the type there. But then he says it's going to turn around, it's going to change. And once we change that attitude, then he is going to give us proper shepherding again and go right on into the millennium. Then when David and Abraham and Moses and all these people are resurrected, we're going to be like them because we developed their kind of character. God uses them as types in the Bible for us to follow as they followed Christ. He even uses their examples of bad to show us that's not the way to be. But many examples of good and many positive examples of people who've made it into the kingdom of God. We have that opportunity if we become the right type. End of transmission.